We're so glad you're with us. I encourage you all, stand to your feet, put your hands together, and let's worship Jesus this morning.
whatever we're struggling with or going through, you are right there, Jesus.
been held in your hands from the moment that I wake up until I lay my head I will see of the goodness of God 
will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is following you. He's behind you. He's in front of you. And he's preparing a way for you. In all our lives, all my life, all your life, he has been faithful. He doesn't know anything else. He can only be faithful. Outside this place, in these walls, outside these four walls, outside the four walls of our house, wherever we go, whatever we say, whatever we do, we will sing of your goodness and speak of your goodness all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are so glad that you are with us this morning as we transition out of this part of worship because we know that worship isn't over just as we leave the stage. Just look around, see somebody you haven't seen in a while, give them a high fist bump, elbow something, but let them know you're glad to see them this morning. Well, good morning, Berean. Good morning, Chapel, and good morning to you that are joining us online. I'm just, it's always exciting to see God's family gathered together, even though we have to wave. I'm just glad that you're here this morning. We're going to continue our journey through the book of Ezra, and I want to remind you how Ezra chapter 7 last week ended. Ezra chapter 7 ends with these words. 
I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. So what was chapter 7 about? Chapter 7 was all about the hand of God. Ezra talks about the gracious hand of God with him, and that carries over into chapter 8, but we talked about what the hand of God does, how important that is, why we need it. Chapter 8 then changes the trajectory, and it's an accounting of the actual journey because there is that unique uh, linking together between God and man, that there's a part that God plays and there's a part that we play, right? How many know that's true? Seven of you, wonderful. It's going to be a great day today. Oh, you know, and I forgot to do this. I couldn't find you, but uh, Pastor Kevin and Trudy are here. Um, stand up. Everybody give them a welcome. Give them a welcome here. They have to come back periodically to get a little Iowa air and keep sanctified. So glad that you're here this morning. Always good to see you. Good friends and uh, faithful ministers of the kingdom. So anyway, there's a unique linking together of the hand of God and the decisions and activity of men. If you are going to see God move, we need his hand, but we also need to participate in that. And chapter 8 is all about the journey. And I know the word journey is a commonly used metaphor for our spiritual life. We use it in a lot of ways. The journey of life, the journey to heaven. We uh, do series like the journey toward Easter, the journey toward Christmas. It's over and over again a metaphor for our progress in life. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's what Ezra chapter 8 was about. Ezra chapter 8 wasn't written to teach us a lesson but to record what happened. But when we get to the New Testament, Paul tells us that everything that happens in the Old Testament was written for our learning. And so I want to make sure that's clear this morning. Chapter 8 is not a metaphor. It really happened. But from what really happened, we can draw some life lessons that will help us on our journey. And that journey is wherever you're headed this morning. Ultimately, how many of you want to go to heaven eventually? Some of you uh, didn't raise your hand. I'm praying God's conviction will get a hold of your heart and you'll be ready by the end of the service. But we're all headed there. Maybe you're headed toward a goal. Maybe you're headed toward um, a particular uh, opportunity. But whatever you're headed toward, how do we finish well? We all know it's not the one that begins. It's the one that finishes that makes the difference. And they finish their journey. How does that happen? Well, it's important to understand the parts that are involved in a journey. I don't know how many history buffs we have, but how many of you remember the doctrine or philosophy in America called Manifest Destiny? How many of you are familiar with Manifest Destiny? Manifest Destiny was a philosophy that uh, took place beginning in about 1845. The idea was that the United States was destined, it was our purpose, to explore inhabit and annex the West. As we're moving across the continent, it was our manifest destiny to claim all of that ground. Now, there was great debate over that, and you ha probably have opinions about whether that was right or wrong, but it was real. It's what was happening at the time. Um, Britain was also exploring uncharted areas of the world, and one of the uncharted areas that Britain was exploring was the Northwest Passage. The Northwest Passage is a sea lane that goes around the Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. 
And that was the job of a man named Sir John Franklin. His mission was supposed to be a turning point in Arctic exploration, and it was a turning point, not because of his success, but because of his failure. Max Lucado writes about this story in a book titled um, Gentle Thunder, and Sir, uh, Sir John had two ships, and neither of them ever returned home. Every single one of his crew members died. And the reason for his failure was lack of preparation. Now listen to what happened. I want you to grab this. It's, it's key to what we're going to talk about this morning. This Arctic exploration was supposed to take two to three years. Now how many of you would think that if you're going to be exploring for two to three years, you should take two to three years worth of food, or at least enough until you can kill a whale or do something. You would think they would plan for that. But he only carried with their supplies a 12-day supply of coal. A 12-day supply of coal. He forgot to take additional fuel, but he did remember to bring things that would keep the crew happy. He brought a library for their relaxation. Today, we don't know what that is. He brought a tangible Google with him. One you could put in your hand. He brought an organ for entertainment, brought fine china for place settings, cut glass wine goblets, the finest of, Stirling, of sterling silver silverware. The Soldiers, or sailors, I should say, all had dress uniforms, but most of them didn't have any winter clothes or coats. It's said in the history book that they were more prepared for tea with the queen than they were prepared to explore the Arctic. You can imagine what happened as they were sailing north. The sea froze around the ship, stranding it in the Arctic. All of the men either froze to death or starved to death. So why did the mission fail? Were they stupid? Were they um, untrained? That's certainly not the case. Sir John Franklin and his 138 men were considered the finest of Britain's sailors. And at the time, Britain had the finest of navies in the world. So why did the mission fail? It's because they didn't do what they knew to do. They knew all of the things they should do. They knew they would need coal. They knew they would need food. They knew they would need all of the other things to get through this two-year exploration. But they were focused more on immediate comfort than they were on an ultimate destination. They wanted to enjoy the next 12 days and froze to death because they weren't prepared for the three-year exploration. It wasn't because they didn't know. It's because they didn't prepare. And I'd say to you as Christ followers, it's one thing to make a commitment, a prayer. Uh, ask Jesus into your life and make a decision that today I'm going to serve Jesus. But more than that has to happen. If we're going to make it to the end of the journey, it's going to take more than a momentary 
pleasure or a momentary experience that satisfies, we've got to look at this journey for the long haul, particularly in the environment we're living in today. I get regularly asked, when will this go back to normal? Let's quit thinking about when it'll go back to normal and make sure we're equipped to get through wherever this goes. And as Christians, it's not about, listen, it's not about you feeling good today. It's about getting ready for heaven. If it were all about feeling good today, then we need to change the way we do some things and I need to change the way I preach, and I need to smile more and just give you pablum that'll make you feel better. But it's not about just having a little grilled cheese. Oh, by the way, I tried to convince my wife to buy me some, you know what the best cheese sandwich in the world is? It is Velveeta. Anybody agree with me? And I am not talking about those Velveeta slices that are wrapped by some miser. I'm talking about the log. And you take your own knife and you cut it about this thick and slather, not just spread, but slather. Miracle Whip, not mayonnaise, but Miracle Whip on both sides. That is heaven on bread. But if you do that every day, it's going to kill you. If you only look at the moment, it's all about the pleasure today. But we have to live, are you hearing me this morning, with a different mindset. It's not about just having fine china today. It's about getting to the Arctic Circle and getting back all in one piece. So child of God, hear me this morning. We need to have a long view of this journey that we're on and understand what it's going to take to make it. I so enjoyed our service Wednesday night as we celebrated the graduates. But the stats tell us that those 8, 9, 10, we had a group of graduates that were here and represented, that not all of them are going to make it. Stats would tell us this group assembled here this morning, not all of us are going to make it. Why? It's not because we don't know, it's because we don't prepare for the long distance part of the journey. How many are with me this morning? So what does this chapter show us about prepping for the journey? And I think there's some things that are really, really important in that. And, and the first one is simply this. You need to take inventory. We don't think about that a lot, but you need to take inventory. Think about that journey to the Northwest Passage. If somebody in their right mind had actually taken inventory, someone would have discovered, wouldn't they? We have 12 days of coal. We don't have coats. We don't have the things that we need. It's essential that we take inventory. How does that happen in the first 20 verses of chapter 8? Well, it tells us in verse 15, I assembled them at the canal that flows toward Ahava, and we camped there three days. Why? When I checked among the priests and the people, I'm going to pause there. What is he doing for those three days? He's assembled everybody that's going to go with them on the journey to Jerusalem. And they don't just, everybody here, all right, get in line and let's go for three days. 
Ezra is registering people and counting people and making sure that they have the people they need to get the job done. They're taking inventory. He's examining who's there. And during the examination of the crowd that's assembled, he discovers we don't have any Levites. We don't have any Levites. What does that mean? It means that he's going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the worship experience and they don't have anybody to lead the worship experience. Church planting is always an interesting endeavor and I love church planters and have walked alongside them. But you can decide to have a worship service but if you don't have anybody who can sing (laughs) or play an instrument, you're not going to have a worship service. Are you hearing what I'm saying? He had to evaluate who was there. There are no Levites. We're going to get there, and there'll be more people, but there'll be nothing we can do because the people that have skill set and training aren't with us. There was a lack that had to be filled, so they found a leader. His name was Sherebiah, and Sherebiah and 18 of his sons joined the group. They also found Hashabiah and 20 from his family, And then they found 220 temple servants, which was a body that David had developed to assist the Levites. And all of them (coughs) were registered by name. (laughs) Not turned into the government. But they were all (laughs) registered by name. That three days was simply this. Before we begin this journey, let's make sure we have the right people to accomplish the tasks when we get there. That's a great leadership lesson. That anytime you're leading any kind of ministry, if you don't have the right people on board, it's not going to be successful. But it's also a great personal life issue to examine the skill sets that you have, the tools that you have, and do you have enough to get the job done? Do you bring enough to the table to get through to the end? You see, Jesus told us to count the cost. And I've had some discussion with pastors lately, and it came up again, that there's a difference between success and health in a church they're not the same Jesus didn't call us to fill buildings and multiply converts he called us to make disciples and so our goal can't be how many can we get to pray a prayer but how many can we lead to Christ and help them make it on the long haul there's a calling for us to disciple and Jesus said to us that it's more than just praying a prayer and uh, assembling together, but that in this walk of faith, you need to count the cost. We don't hear that much anymore. We want big crowds, everybody smiling, everybody happy, and then wonder why the recidivism rate is so high. Here's what Jesus said. I only believe that Jesus, uh, when Jesus says something, we should listen. <laughs> Okay, it's going to be one of those mornings. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, I'm going to pause there just for a minute because I can't resist it. But we love the quote, These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They will do miracles. You know who's going to do the miracles? Those who have taken up their cross. Our pursuit of the supernatural can be overshadowed or diminished, I should say, 
by our lack of willingness to crucify our flesh. You've got to carry the cross. And if the coronavirus is doing anything today, I don't know why I do this. It is amplifying the carnality of Christ's followers. You don't have to be half-witted to see what's happening among believers. We talk about division between the races. We have division between ethnicities. We have division on financial things. We have division over COVID. And never in my life have I watched believers be so mean to each other on social media. Come on, shout now, somebody. You know what I'm telling you is the truth. What is it doing? It's amplifying our carnality that we're not willing to take up our cross and follow him. We're going to demand our rights. And Jesus said, if you're going to come after me and be my disciple, not my convert, but be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war with another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming at him with 20,000? If he's not able, if he's not able... He will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. Think about that for a moment. I'm talking about finishing the journey. I'm talking about getting through one of the most difficult challenges the church has faced in my lifetime. Not the most difficult challenge the church has ever faced but it's a difficult one because it's attacking the fiber of our unity and our character. And what has to happen is consumer Christianity has got to be replaced with committed Christ followers. And that an attractional model of ministry has to be replaced with an intentional missional model of ministry so that those who join will say, we're in this for the long haul. We're going to fulfill God's calling on our life and we'll give up anything we have to give up in order to see the kingdom of God advance rather than how is the kingdom of God going to bless me? Well, shout now, somebody. It'll take longer if you just stare at me. Counting the cost. Those were Jesus' words. Do you have what it takes to make it through? Have you looked at your own life and determined, here's where I'm strong, here's where I'm weak, and where I'm weak, I need to do something to make that part of my life stronger spiritually. Are we looking at those things? Are we working out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Are we doing what Paul said, to examine yourselves? He said to the church, examine yourselves and see whether you're even in the faith. It's called counting the cost. There's a price. There's a price. I haven't paid as much as many people have paid. Pastor Tim, I've got scars on my back. You have scars on your back of prices that have been paid along the way that have been, it'd been easier to just walk away. There are times you have to count the cost. It will, listen, 
I know this flies in the face of consumer Christianity in America today, but it's time that we take a look at that. It's not enough to profess a faith. You have to count the cost and be willing to pay the price because those are the ones that will see this thing through to the other side. What is it that I need to grow in? What do I need to develop in? Where do I need to be stronger? Do I have enough? Yes, you need to look at that and determine where you need to be stronger. Do I have a temper that needs to be disciplined? Do I have a, do I have a lukewarm spirit that needs to be inspired? Have I walked away from the disciplines of the faith? Where is it that I need to grow in order to endure? Because Jesus said, if you're not willing to give all, you can't be his disciple. I didn't expect you to shout, but I think it's time for us to honestly look at what the scripture says and to complete the journey. There is a price to be paid. What if I don't have enough? Oh, I'm so glad you asked because this gets better. How many are done with being depressed? Can you give us something to be happy about? Yes, yes, here you go. I read about a time that Jesus was looking at 5,000 men and their families who were hungry. And what did Jesus tell the disciples to do? He already knew what he would do. He already knew, but he said to them, what do we got? What do we have? He wouldn't have said what do we got because it was in English. What do we have available to us? They found a boy with his lunch. And Philip says... When they take an account, they're counting the cost. Philip says, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that everyone may take a little. We've counted the cost. We don't have the money that's necessary. One of his disciples, Andrew, said, here's a lad here. He has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Jesus said, make the men sit down. Do you realize that Jesus often says things that has nothing to do with what you just said? We don't have enough. Make the men sit down. <laughs> so the men sat down. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks. Watch this. He didn't intercede. He didn't petition. He gave thanks. The power of multiplication is in giving thanks in the midst of your poverty, giving thanks in the midst of your need. That's when multiplication will happen. Jesus gave thanks and then gave it to the disciples. And I'm probably thinking, if I were one of those, oh, great, you get to pray and we get to have egg on our face. What are we going to do with this bread? He distributed the disciples, the disciples of those that were set down, And they had as much bread and fish as they could eat and gathered 12 baskets of fragments over and above what everyone could eat. How does that start? Philip said, we're not sufficient. We've counted the costs. We don't have enough. And Jesus says, sit down. (laughs) Sit down. I'm going to show you that when... 
when you recognize that you don't have enough, do you know where you are? You're on the threshold of seeing a supernatural display of his all-sufficiency. But you can't see that as long as you think you're enough. You can't see that while you have all the answers. You can't see that when you have enough resources. It's in those moments when in self-evaluation you pause and say, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. And Jesus says, I'll give thanks and I'll multiply and there'll be a, an abundance left over. That's why you count the cost. Not because you give up when you don't have enough, but not having enough will drive you to the one who has an abundant supply for all of us. And I'm saying to you this morning, where are you weak? Where do you lack? Well, I don't have enough faith. Come to him. He'll increase your faith. I don't have enough passion. Come to him. He'll increase your passion. Where is it that you lack? Come to him. Because he's the God of all sufficiency. Jesus is sufficient. He has what you need. But until you take inventory, you'll never go to him for that supply. Amen. Preach, brother. I will. I'm trying. Now, this may seem like the next, but what happens next? After you take inventory then you need to strengthen your faith overall. You need to strengthen your faith. And I, lo I love this story. I love Ezra. He's so honest. He's so authentic. He doesn't play any games. Look at verse 21. If you've not read this ahead of time. There by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast. Now watch. Why did he proclaim a fast? And he starts off spiritual, and then he gets honest. Don't you like that? I mean, people start off and give you the Jesus answer, the Sunday school answer. This is what I'm supposed to say. And then when those are all done, now let me tell you what I really mean. <laughs> Why are we going to fast, Ezra? We're going to fast so that we might humble ourselves before God. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. I read a story about a young man who went to a wise man and asked him for counsel. And he said, I want you to walk around for the next three days with your nose straight up in the air. So he did, and a rainstorm came, went back to the wise man. He said, with my nose in the air, I almost drowned. He said, lesson learned. There's got to be a humbling of ourselves. Oh, I wish this were over. But I know this is going to hurt somebody's feelings. And I don't mean to. I really don't. But you're not the smartest person in the room. God has people in the kingdom that can do more than you can do. If you want to count the cost and grow in your faith... Humility is less of me and more than him. And so that is a legitimate reason to fast, to humble yourself. I'm always ready to fast right after a meal. Humble yourself. Then he says, we're going to fast and ask God for a safe journey for us and our children and all our possessions. That's pretty spiritual so far too, isn't it? Oh, God, humble us and 
keep us safe and keep our families safe and keep all of our stuff safe. You know the real reason he called for a fast? It's in the next verse. Because he was ashamed to ask for help. <laughs> he was ashamed to ask for help. Why was he ashamed to ask for help? Because he went to the king and the king offered to send help and Ezra said, oh no, the gracious hand of our God is with us. He'll take care of us. And it's, have you ever had a confession? I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but a confession of faith come out of your mouth that you wish you could suck back in. <laughs> the king is offering help and no, we don't need that. God is with us. Why did I just say that? I'm going to give $10,000 to missions next year. Why? Why did I just say that? I'm going to share my faith with my neighbor tomorrow. Why did I just say that? Because it might be that your spirit is bypassing your flesh to get you to respond to God's dealing in your heart. And he said, how can I go back to the king and ask for his help when I said that God would protect us? I love it when people own their declaration of faith. I, I declared that our God was enough. And if I really believe that our God is enough, then I need to quit looking for a plan B. Why? Because that would say to the king, you don't really believe what you've professed. You don't really believe what you told me. How many people do you think watch believers and wonder if we really believe what we say? <laughs> the joy of the Lord is our strength. He gives peace that passes understanding. He's my healer. He's my supplier. And then we worry and fret and complain and criticize. And we cast it all about some of us. I better sit down for this. It'd be good if some of us got ashamed. Oh, man, you're thinking, I came, I came here for this? Pastor, I didn't come here to be ashamed. I'm going to tell you that when you take inventory and you want to strengthen your faith, you have to deal with the weakness that God shows you. You have to deal with that. And Ezra says, I made a confession of faith, and I'm going to own it. I'm going to live by it. If it was good yesterday, it's good today. And he says to him, in this moment of need, here's what I know. And this is what's important to grab hold of. When he made the confession of faith and he was embarrassed to go back on his decree or his confession, then what did he do? He made sure that spiritually he paid the price, he counted the cost, he paid the price to grow his faith that he could walk in what he had declared. You see, the answer isn't just in your declaration of faith. It's then saying, oh, God, what did I just declare? And then walk into the place where you humble yourself before God and say, stretch me, grow me, make me stronger, give me power that I can walk in what you birthed on the inside of me. You see, fasting and praying isn't about protection. When you read the scripture... Fasting and praying isn't about harnessing this impersonal power to accomplish a goal or a task. 
It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you set aside food to seek him and you spend time talking to him, do you know what will happen? You'll become like him. You'll spend time with him and you'll begin to grow in your relationship with him. It's about strengthening your faith. So hear me this morning, church. If you're not strengthening your faith today, you're not going to make it. You'll be a casualty because there isn't anywhere along the, along the line that's okay to quit growing. I'm, I'm going to let you in on the dark side of ministry. Um, had a birthday this week. Thank you for all the birthday greetings. I appreciate all of those. Um, I'm officially 55 plus quite a few more couple of characters here on the front row were going to bring me a walker this morning. <laughs> At this stage of my journey, I want you to hear me for a moment. I haven't done the math, but it's been 40-some years of ministry. A lot of that time I preached three times a week. And you take three times a week times 40 years um, times 52 weeks in a year, that's a bunch I could quit prepping today and never preach a sermon you've heard before because I have almost everything I've ever prepped in reserve. And I've watched that. Pastor Tim, you know what I'm saying is true. I've watched older ministers who begin to coast into retirement because we've, I've got enough backed up. I've got boxes of stuff. But you know the day I do that is the day my ministry will start to die? Because you will never, here's, here's what I think. This may sound really arrogant. Forgive me for this. You have to forgive me almost every Sunday, so don't quit now. But I don't believe I've preached my best message yet. I don't think I've had my greatest revelation from God yet. I don't believe I've seen the pinnacle of ministry in my life yet. In other words, I think there are more hills to climb, more mountains to climb, more to understand. And the deeper I dig, the more I realize there is to learn. And the more I grow, the more there is to grab hold of. And I'm saying to you, I can't afford to stop learning until I go to heaven because I'm convinced that lifelong learning and lifelong spiritual growth are essential to making it to the end of the journey. And the same is true for you. There is nowhere along the journey that you can say, I know enough, I've prayed enough, I've fasted enough, I've memorized enough, and now I'm going to coast nowhere. If you're going to make it to the promised land, you've got to keep growing your faith. Ezra was the greatest man the king could find. And Ezra said, I haven't grown enough to accomplish this next task that God has put in front of me. Spiritual disciplines matter. It fuels your tank. Praying, fasting, giving all matter. It fuels your tank. And you have to do that. You have to do that. So you have to strengthen your faith. And then third, in this chapter, the third thing they do after they, they take time to take inventory, he focuses on fasting and strengthening my faith so that, so that I can walk in this declaration. Then he creates accountability. <laughs> yeah, I didn't expect this to be a revival meeting. 
But if you're not, <laughs> if you're not accountable to somebody, you're not going to make it. Because you're devious. Look to your neighbor and say, you have a devious side. You say, no, I don't. Oh, oh yeah, you need to read Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, try the reins. I search the heart and says that we need to come now and reason together with him. Those are the scriptures that were given that left our own devices. We can convince ourselves of almost anything. You've got to create an accountability structure. That's what the real danger of online church is and the digital worship community right now is that, that it's easy to join into worship experience without having any accountability. And I have to tell you, I don't think that's going away. And we're having a discussion right now as a team on how we can engage the digital community for those who feel don't feel safe to come back, yet I affirm you in that. But we need a way to make you accountable to the kingdom because without accountability, there's not going to be any success at the end of your journey. Accountability is part of the kingdom. In James chapter 5, we just finished that on Wednesday, about praying for the sick. Confess your faults one to another, and then pray one for another that you may be healed. There's an accountability structure that's essential. Look at verse 24. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests. He took 12 of the best priests the most trustworthy priests that they had. And with those 12, he assigned them the offerings. I set apart 12 of the leading priests and weighed out the offerings. And he said, you, as well as these, are consecrated to the Lord. And you have to see that, that you and the trust he's given you are consecrated to the Lord. It's you and your task. It's you and your calling. It's you and your responsibilities are consecrated to them. And they both have to be honored. So they travel. And they, when they get there, remember they took three days to take inventory they travel for, I believe it's four months, and when they get there, they take three days to rest. Rest is important. They take three days to rest. Then what happens? These men, who were the most trusted leaders Ezra had, were given responsibility for the gold, silver, and sacred things. And what do they do? He measured them out. He measured them out. What, you don't trust me? Oh, that's the American way. Oh, you don't trust me? I trust you. That's why I'm going to measure it to prove that you're trustworthy. Trustworthy people don't resent accountability because it's a moment to say, you gave me 10 pounds of gold, I'm returning 10 pounds of gold. I've kept my trust. That's what Paul said at the end of his journey. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. That's what we all want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's what the thrust of the parable of the talents is. You've given me this responsibility and I've carried it out. I've done what you've asked me 
to do. They were accountable to complete their tasks. And when it was given to them, it all measured out exactly the same. Because they were accountable. We are a body. We are a community. We are a family. And accountability helps motivate us to complete the journey. I'll never forget, we had an older pastor and his wife on the team in previous church. And they were gone, or he was there, but she was gone a Sunday. And so I walked up to her and I said, hey, missed you last Sunday. That's all I meant. That is all I, I missed you last Sunday. I don't know where she was. I figured it was her business. Missed you. What are you checking up on me? You've got no right to check up on me. I've served the Lord all these years. You have no right to check up on me. Do you know what? I had a right then to check up on her because her heart was wrong. At that point, I don't know, maybe she robbed a bank. Not probably, but people who have integrity invite accountability. I had a man in one church that said, what do you do with all your time? You probably don't put in however many hours. I said, Here's what we'll do. Monday, you get up when I get up. You go where I go. You go to bed when I go to bed. You sit there when I take the calls. You sit there while I prep. You follow me for a week. And at the end of that week, if you have a criticism, I'd be glad to hear it. But I'm not afraid to make my life accountable. He decided to not take me up on the offer. I can promise you if he had taken me up on the offer, I'd have worked longer that week. I'd have set up some calls. <laughs> Listen to me. You need someone you're accountable to. A spouse, a friend, the church, the body. Yes, we have a right to miss you when you're gone and find out where you've been. Those of you that are online listening, we have a, you have a right to us and we have a right to you to know how you're doing. Are you staying connected? We don't want to lose anybody in the journey. And right now I feel like I'm grasping at gnats, trying to create a structure that will work. And I understand that I can't hold anyone accountable that doesn't want to be accountable and that you have to create the accountability that you need to make it. How many are hearing what I'm saying? We need to be held accountable. Oh, I know, this isn't Happy Sunday. But it's Helping Sunday. The journey. Three days to get ready. Take inventory. Search your own heart. And when you take inventory, then set a path to strengthen your faith. And when you set a path to strengthen your faith, then make yourself accountable to make sure you do what you've said you're going to do. Let's stand together. Could we take just a minute? And here's what I felt like God laid in my heart. Could we start an examination moment online in the chapel here in the main auditorium and just say, God, please don't pray this prayer. God, is there any area I need to grow in? That's like my saying to my wife, if I've offended you in any way, I've just multiplied the offense. Have any of you tried that? It doesn't work. God, where is it? 
Where is my lack? Where have I not taken inventory? Where is it that I need to grow? Would you just kind of shut yourself in for a moment? And just ask him to begin that journey in your life so that you can complete your journey. God, show us where we need to grow. Show us where we need to grow. Jesus, in the quietness of this moment, I know your presence is here in the room. And we want to complete our journey with joy. We want to honor you in this journey. Would you enlighten the eyes of our heart right now? And let us see where we lack so that we can strategize how to be stronger so we can complete the journey in an accountable way that honors you. In this crazy, crazy time, God, hold us accountable for our words, our actions, our attitudes. Let Christ be preeminent in us. Let the fire of this uncertain time not, not wound us, but purge and purify us. Help us walk in unity, in love for one another, in the fullness of your call. Speak to us, I ask, in Jesus' name. And everyone that loves him said, amen, amen. You can be seated just for a moment. If you love Jesus, let me hear your hands this morning. If you love Jesus. And please understand, it's never my intent to offend, but I do believe it's time for us to take some inventory and to move forward. And those of you that are giving online, you're giving at the giving box, you're giving through the mail, you're giving in the drop box, thank you so much because that's part of the journey. Our responsibility is the same post-COVID as it was pre-COVID, and God honors givers. And you're a wonderful church, a great body of believers. Love all of you and appreciate the way that you're supporting, the way that you're working, the way that you're giving, and the way that you're part of what's happening here at Berean. The entire staff says thank you for your um, faithfulness.